Father God, what we need more than anything else, anything else in our lives right now, is for you to come here and be with us. That is the greatest need of our souls right now, is that we would hear your word, that I would hear it, and that I would faithfully speak it, Father, and that my friends here who are with me would hear your word and that our hearts would be compelled to believe the reality that Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the universe. There is nothing more important than him. And that we would not only see that from an emotional perspective, which is huge, but Father, we would be willing to give up anything for this truth. This was the truth that would anchor us to everything we do in our lives, our passions, our purpose, Father, that we would see it being rooted in who Jesus Christ is and his supremacy over all things. So I pray for that right now that you would move today with me and my friends and powerfully awaken in our hearts a new understanding, a new desire, a new passion for this truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. So to us at Risen Hope, if you've been here for any number of weeks, um, you may have heard me say this phrase, I just said it, Jesus Christ for us is everything. He is everything to us. Uh, not only is he the image of the invisible God, not only is he the glory of the Father personified according to Hebrews 1, not only is he the name above every name, but he is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. And what that means is that Jesus is everything to us. And everything else that exists in this world, good, bad, whatever it might be, is infinitely secondary compared to Jesus. And I use those two words, infinitely and secondary, very deliberately. Jesus is everything to me and everything to this body of believers. So we're looking today at the centrality of Christ. And to do that, uh, I want to uh, turn to Matthew 21. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. Matthew 21 or some form of it copy of God's Word with you. Matthew 21, verse 33. And uh, so we're exploring this pillar, God willing, all the pillars, uh, uh, from a, a, a unique lens. We've gone throughout the Bible and looked at different ways that the, the pillars shine through Scripture. But what I wanted to do here is I kind of wanted to limit this to Jesus' teachings, and I kind of want to limit this to his parables and see if we can get a, a unique look at these pillars, a fresh sort of understanding of what these four things, which if they're the main things for us, I really hope that they're the main things for Jesus. I hope that he thinks that these are central and key and important. And so that's what we're going to do. We're limiting the premise that we're operating under in these four weeks, God willing, will be for us to look at parables of Jesus that allow these pillars to shine uh, from his own teaching and my prayer is that we would all see them very clearly. So Matthew 21, verse 33. I'm going to read through the entire text, and then we'll unpack it. Ready? All right. 33. Jesus says here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. 
saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus says, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vine vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Theologians generally believe that the parable we're reading happened the Tuesday before he dies on the cross. And this chapter and the chapter before this follow Jesus into Jerusalem and through the temple as he drives out money changers and into that week, that week, the holy week, the week where he dies. And this is it. Jesus will be lifeless on a cross by the end of this week. And he knows it. He knows it because he says to his disciples specifically this, Matthew 20, 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus knows that he's going to die. He even knows how he's going to die. It's not a mystery to him. He's not confused about it. But he also knows something else. He knows that death will not be the last word. He will be raised on the third day. And the parable of the tenants deals with this fact, deals with this reality, the reality of Jesus' death and the reality of his resurrection and exaltation. But here's the deal. There's more to this parable than simply a man dying and rising from the dead. There's more here than that. As amazing as that fact is, there's more here. The, the parable that we're looking at today, it, it looks into something of unparalleled significance. The parable looks into the center of all things, the, the, the reason for all things. A parable looks directly into the face of the most important thing people can know, and that is the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. So I want to look closer at this parable and see if we can see it. Verse 33 in Matthew 21 sets the stage. It says this. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower. 
So let's stop here and think for a second. What is Jesus trying to say here? There's a master of the house. He planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it. He even built a tower over it. What's the point of this sentence in Jesus' parable? Why is he asking this question? Why is he stating this statement? The point is that it all belongs to the master. It is his. He alone created it. No one else owns it. No one else has any rights over it. It is his. Period. He's even later referred to as the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is his. It belongs exclusively to him, every single inch of it. And then Jesus says this in verse 34. The master of the house leased it to, to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. It's his fruit. So here's the deal. The master of the house leaves the country. He entrusts the vineyard to tenants, and he entrusts to them fruit bearing in the vineyard. It's your job as tenants to bear fruit here. They will manage the vineyard, and they will ensure that it produces the, the right, proper yield. And then he will give to the owner, the master, the yield in their season. That's why he says, as the season drew near, the master sends his servants to get his fruit. It's his fruit. It belongs to him. The servants are going with the expectation when they come to the vineyard of receiving this fruit. But as you know, the tenants have other plans. Look at verse 35. It says, And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent more servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. So the tenants are not interested in giving the master of the house, the owner of the vineyard, anything really, no less fruit, rather than treat even the servants civilly and send them away empty-handed and refusing to give them fruit, rather than to even give them a pretense of kindness, they beat one of the servants, they kill one of the servants, and then they stone one of the servants. Now, it should be clear to us, and it should be clear to everybody who in the first century is listening to Jesus speak this parable, that this is wicked. This is wicked. This is not just. It is the owner's fruit. The tenants don't own the fruit. They don't own it. It belongs to the master of the house. And so the tenants here are behaving in a way that is unambiguously wicked. In fact, it's, it's reprehensible because their entire job, their entire purpose is to provide the master with this fruit. So consider this. The master's response in this parable isn't to send soldiers over. It isn't to send hired thugs um, at the first servant who's beaten. That's his right. It's his vineyard. The master's response here is astonishingly grace. And he sends another servant who is killed. And then he sends another servant who is cruelly stoned. And so at this point, we would expect, and the audience that's listening to Jesus would expect the master of the house to exercise his rights over the vineyard and over the fruit and over the servants that have been killed that belong to him. At the very least, by some kind of prosecution or even sending like a militia over to uproot these tenants forcefully and put them to death, which is what they deserve. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. It says 
Um, again, he sent other servants more than the first. This is real patience. This is radical kindness. This is not normal. This is not normal behavior. And it is only returned by more reprehensible violence. And so what will he do? What would you do if you were the master of the house here? How would you respond to the wickedness that's been thrust upon you? This is your fruit. This is your vineyard. That was the deal you had with the tenants. That was the arrangement. How would you respond? Verse 37 tells us what the master of the house, the owner of the vineyard does. It says, finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. They will respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, the son, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. The master of the house sends, despite everything that's happened, the master of the house sends his son. Tenants don't recognize my authority vested in these servants. Therefore, I will send my son the consummation of my authority, who will indeed one day be the master of the house, my only heir. I will send my son. My son will speak for me. And they will respect him because he's my heir. He is me. He embodies me. He's more than just a representative. In a very real way, he is the master of the house. And it will all belong to him one day. And the tenants know this. And so they say to themselves, let us kill him. And the inheritance is ours. That's their goal. We don't want him. We don't want the son. We want his stuff. We want his inheritance, his possessions. We want his rights. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they murder him. And Jesus closes the parable with a very stark question. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now one of the beautiful things about having separate accounts of the parables and really of, of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is that we can see behind the scenes. We can see different responses. This account, this parable exists in Mark and exists in Luke. And there's slight differences because they, God desired when he gave us scripture to give us a fuller picture from these different perspectives that were present of what those passages mean. So some of the people hear this question and they answer in disgust like we saw here. They say he will put those wretches to a miserable death which is what I think we're thinking. Take them out. Let the vineyard out to other tenants who will produce fruits and, and, and come through on the original arrangement between the master and the tenants, which Jesus, of course, would agree with. The tenants will be destroyed, he says in, in other parts of uh, the gospel narrative. They will be destroyed. And the vineyard's going to be given to people who will produce fruits and give the master fruits in their season. That's exactly what will be, ha will be happening. But this is not the only response in the crowd. There's another response in this crowd. Some of the people hear this parable and they know exactly what Jesus is talking about. They know exactly who Jesus is talking about. He is talking about the same people he's been arguing with and fighting with his entire ministry, the religious leaders. 
the religious leaders here, specifically the chief priests and the Pharisees, who are effectively the rulers in Jerusalem. Their response to the notions that the tenant will be let out, the tenants will be let out in the parable, is actually two words in Luke 20:16. Surely not is their response. Surely not. The master will surely not remove the tenants. And we might, if we were in the crowd with them, ask them, why not? Did you just hear that story? Why would they not? And if they were honest with us, if they were really sincere, they would say, because Jesus is talking about us. Which becomes very clear in verse 45 when Luke says, they perceived he was speaking about them in the parables. The dots are connecting for them. The tenants are the rulers of Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about us, they say. God is the master of the house. And the prophets of the Old Testament were beaten and killed by the religious leaders of their day. These prophets are clearly the servants in Jesus' parable. They were servants of God, yet they were disregarded. They were mistreated and some of them were slaughtered. They are, the leaders, were the very people that God had, these tenants, entrusted the care of the nation of Israel to lead his people in worship, in worship of the one true God. And when God sent these servants, these prophets, for fruits of righteousness, what God should have, this is his vineyard, what he received instead of hearts that love him and treasure him and delight in him is nothing but violence. That's what he gets in response to the prophets, violence. And so the builders, the tenants, hear this and they hear the interpretation and they say, surely not. He's not going to let us go. Surely not. And Jesus responds with something amazing. He tells them, have you never read in the scriptures? Now think about this, who he's talking to. These are the chief priests and the Pharisees. They know the Bible inside out, the Old Testament. They know it. They know it. In fact, large sections of it, they have memorized already. And Jesus is saying, have you never read in the scriptures? You never read it, the Bible. Do you have a Bible, Pharisees? Do you read it? So you see what he's saying here. This is critical for us to understand. There is a way you can read the Bible and miss everything. Miss everything in the Bible. There's a way that you can read it that even quote it and understand it, that allows you to miss everything. That's what they did. They, they had memorized large sections. They probably memorized this passage, Psalm 118, and yet they couldn't see it, which is stunning to me, and it's a little scary. It tells me about my own Bible reading, whatever it is, when I come and sit down with this book and I, I look at it and let it look into my soul, whatever it is, it cannot be a superficial reading. It cannot be a superficial reading. This is not a game. It is real. The difference between um, seeing what's really there and missing it like they did is massive. You don't get further than that. And they knew the Bible. And in his explanation of this parable, Jesus decides to quote Psalm 118. This is what he says. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 21. The stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then he contextualizes for them, saying, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, consider for a second what's being said here. Consider the context, actually, that it's being said in. Jesus is quoting the Psalms, psalmist's prophecy They know this verse. They've read this verse before. It's been around for centuries. And Jesus is telling them that it refers to you. When the psalmist wrote this hundreds of years ago, this was, you were the people God had put in his mind. You are the builders. And then he says, the stone that the builders rejected, like the tenants rejected the sun, that stone has actually become the cornerstone, which literally means the head of the corner. It is the most important stone in the building. Every other stone depends and relies on that stone being set in place. And it's the one the builders rejected. It's the one they threw away. They didn't like the look of it. And it didn't become a cornerstone by a fluke or by a necessity. In this passage, it became the cornerstone Because God desired for it to be the cornerstone. That's what it says here. The psalmist says, this was the Lord's doing. The Lord did this. We didn't do this. The Lord did this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm the stone. I'm the stone that they're talking about there. And you are the builders. Therefore, the kingdom of God, this vineyard, It will be taken away from you and it will be given to another people who will bear and produce their fruits. So I want you to put yourself there 2,000 years ago and imagine imagine you're a Pharisee and you've heard him say this parable. You've heard him explain what the parable means using Psalm 118 and you're a Pharisee. You know this passage and you have rage rising up in you right now towards him. You experience rage in your heart towards him and it's the same exact feelings which will cause you to fulfill the prophecy that he's just spoken over you, that they will reject Jesus. The reality of this passage will not serve as a warning for these Pharisees and for these chief priests to stop and reconsider this is God's stone That won't happen. What will happen instead is that they will reject him and the anger from their rejection. It says here at the end of the passage, they're going to seek to arrest him. This is a catalyst and not a warning for them to pursue him, which tells us one thing here. It tells us that there's something deeper than a lack of evidence for these people. There's something more broken than them not having all the facts. They have all the facts, They're looking at the cornerstone and they hate him. They hate him. And they can't stand to say that man is the son of God. They can't stand to say it. They hate that he is the heir and they will do anything to destroy him. And this isn't a new issue for the religious leaders. It's been going on for years. John the Baptist, three years prior to this, 
before the parables, before this parable is even spoken of by Jesus, before he's even entered into ministry, he is talking to religious leaders, John the Baptist. And he says this in Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John's baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then he tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire probably talking to the same people. John the Baptist is telling them, you do not presume that you are a child of Abraham just because biologically you are. Don't presume that. If you persist in rebellion, if you persist in unrepentant behavior, you are presuming on the riches of his kindness. God can raise children from stones. He doesn't need you. You need him. And you need to trust him and repent of your wickedness. That's what true children of Abraham do, according to Galatians 3.7. Which is why John the Baptist can say with confidence that every tree, every single tree that does not bear good fruit, will be cut down. And it will be thrown into the fire. He's not playing around with these guys. He's talking about the tenants here. Three years before the parable is even spoken. Which will take us back to the parable and to this final line that Jesus speaks after he says the parable. Verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone, the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's a heavy line. The one who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces. And when the stone, the cornerstone, falls on anyone, it will crush him. Him. What does he mean here? What's the point of this sentence, Jesus? Why include this at the end of the parable? It comes up in Luke as well at the end of that one. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He's the stone that will cause others to fall and be broken into pieces. But he's also the stone that will crush anyone who he falls on. Now, why say it like that? Well, I do not believe that it is an exaggeration or an overstatement to say that this passage right here, this verse right here, looks into the center of reality. The meaning and reason for everything to exist is pointed to by this verse. There are, in this parable, Three crushings mentioned. Three different times something crushes another thing. And I want to look at all three and I want to see if we can press into the meaning of what this is and see this truth. The three crushings will get us to the most important reality in the universe. Um, The thing that undergirds everything that you can conceive of, hope in, love. And these three crushings will open the door for that. So the first crushing is of those who stumble over the stone, the Messiah. Some of you who've heard this taught on before already know this. 
He's talking about the leaders of Israel, the tenants. Romans 9.33, when Paul is quoting the book of Isaiah on behalf of God, he says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, whoever believes in this stone, will not be put to shame. God says, I'm setting a stone down. It's going to cause people to be offended. It's going to cause people to stumble. But faith in this stone alone will remove all shame. Will remove all shame. However, though you will never be put to shame if you trust in this stone, if you ignore him, you will most certainly stumble which is precisely what Isaiah warns against in this passage. Isaiah Isaiah 8 says this, The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he, the Lord of hosts, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. This is what happens to people when they stumble on the cornerstone. When they stumble on Jesus Christ, the center of reality, they fall flat on the rock of offense and they are broken into pieces. And this is exactly what's going to happen to the religious leaders here. Exactly. The tenants took Jesus, the cornerstone, threw him out and killed him. They refused to believe in Jesus Christ in his gospel. And they threw it outside of Jerusalem. They rejected the very stone that God had intended to be the head of the corner. And they will trip over it and stumble to their own destruction. In 70 AD, a generation from this parable being told, four short decades later, Jerusalem will be sacked by the Roman Empire and obliterated. And the kingdom that these religious rulers were trying to maintain will come to an end. Their days are numbered, and that end is the first crushing in this parable. From unbelief in Christ to destruction. The second crushing is also here in Matthew 21, 44. The verse says, when it falls on anyone, when the cornerstone falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is Jesus referring to here? Why is the cornerstone falling on someone? He's saying the cornerstone isn't just tripped over. The cornerstone will fall on people. And when it does, it will crush them. It will shatter them completely. Psalm 110 says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. The psalmist is talking about Jesus. The Lord is at his right hand. It says, Jesus Christ will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, the day of the Lord. This is the last day. In the Bible, sometimes it's just referred to as the day. Because in the end, it will be the only one that people will remember. And everyone, every single human being who ever lived and ever took breath will be very aware of what's going on in that day. They will know this day. There won't be any exceptions. Even the ones who pierced him will see him. We will all see him when he returns. And when we do, we will either rejoice in his return or we will curse. 
We will either love him and be thrilled to see him or we will hate him. There will be no middle ground on that day. None. And you see, the, the, the rejection of the stone isn't a unique phenomenon that is particular to ethnic Israel or to the leaders of Israel. The rejection of this stone isn't specific to this time. This rejection of the stone has its roots in humanity's rejection of God from the very beginning. It is more than just an event 2,000 years ago. It is literally the anthem of human existence. Romans 1 says, of humans, of humanity, mankind, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this is why they're fools. This is why they're fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling man, creeping things, animals. We're not just talking about a single event in Palestine 2,000 years ago. We're talking about all of human existence since the first sin. And in response to this, the stone, the rock of stumbling, the cornerstone, Christ, will return one day, Psalm 110 says, and he will execute judgment on the nations. He will fill them with corpses. So this isn't, one of the reasons why we engage passages like this is that it's not a fiction. This is not game. This is not a game. This is a very real day in the future. And it is headed towards us. It's racing towards us. Everyone who has not found refuge in the cornerstone will be crushed. But everyone who's not mourned their own rejection of God and embraced Jesus as their Messiah will be crushed by the cornerstone. Second Thessalonians 1 has very heavy words describing this, breathtaking even. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's a hard passage. I'm going to be real with you. One of the reasons why that's not spoken of in a lot of churches is because that's hard to read to people. But it's in the Bible. And I'm reading it because I love you and I want you to embrace the cornerstone. I want you to embrace him. We can't afford to play games with this. This is not a game. This isn't make-believe. This last day is real and it is headed for us, which will take us into the third crushing that's in this passage, the one that's not explicit. And that's actually in verse 38, Matthew 21, 38. When the tenants saw the son, they said to him, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they took the son, they took Jesus, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They killed him. Matthew 27 describes this scene just a few chapters later. This man, Christ Jesus, rejected by his people. Rejected by the religious the builders, the, 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 the people who should have recognized the stone if anyone did. A crown of thorns is placed on his head, pressed into his skull. He's spat on. He is struck with a reed. The cornerstone 
treated like a criminal. They force him out of the city and they crucify him on a cross. Matthew 27, 41 says this, the chief priest with the scribes and the elders, these people he just told the parable to, mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They mock him, make fun of him. Little do they know that in fact he is doing exactly what his father has commanded. In fact, this is the most humble and obedient act in all of human history. Though innocent of every wrongdoing, though worthy of every possible praise, Jesus is crushed on that tree. Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So God the Father crushes his only begotten son on that tree for our sake. He does it for us. This is the third crushing. Because of his great love and mercy towards us, even in the face of millennia of rejection of God, he pursues us. He comes for us. He pursued you. And he had to go through the tree to get there. That's what the cross is. A picture of how far God was willing to go, not because we're good, not because we're worthy, not because we deserve this, but because his love is ridiculous and will not be stopped. Not even death is going to stop this love. Therefore, Jesus is the only way He's the only way to escape that second crushing the last day. He is the only way. So when, when Peter and John, um, in Acts 3, when they walk in to the temple and they see a man who's uh, been crippled his whole life, and uh, they heal this lame beggar, um, they're arrested because they're preaching the gospel and that can't be allowed. They're arrested and they're brought before the same people probably who are mocking Jesus and who heard this parable, and they're response to the religious leaders on trial is amazing. Acts 4 verse 8 starts, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you um, and to all the people of Israel that, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They're saying there's no salvation in anyone else. Anyone else. None. Christ is the only refuge from stumbling into unbelief. He's the only sanctuary on the last day. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of God's building. For there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. And so the cross is where this third crushing happens. God crushed his son. For all who would have him, that sacrifice is theirs. Where the son 
takes on every ounce of our rejection and dishonoring of God, goes to the tree, whether it's a white lie or whether it's adultery, whether it's pornography, whether it's murder, whatever it is, any sin you can conceive of, he bears it all on that tree for our sake and for the glory of his Father. And we simply place our lives in his hands by faith and receive him for who he is. But there's something here. There's, there's, there's something even more than that. This is bigger than a, a morally, even a morally perfect man, if we can conceive of such a thing. We're so saturated with sin, it's hard to even think about it. This is bigger than a morally perfect man bearing this sin for another. We can think of that. This is bigger than that. This is bigger than that. Jesus wasn't just a perfect man. Jesus was the center of reality. He is the reason, according to Colossians 1, which we read in the Christ hymn months ago, he is the reason for all things. You want to know why things exist in this world? Jesus Christ is the reason why. And he dies here, naked and alone on a tree outside of Jerusalem so that you and I could be free. The center of reality. The reason for all things. I don't think, I think we fail to feel the weight of that. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Jesus, think about this, never had a beginning. He never came into being. He's always been there. Always been there. And all things we see in this universe were created by him and through him and ultimately for him. Reality, what we experience in this world, exists for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Every breath, every molecule, everything is for him. And he sustains it all by his sovereign word of power. Everything's held together by him. He's the, invi- he's the image of the invisible God. He's the Firstborn of all creation. He is the radiance of the glory of his Father, the exact imprint of his nature. He looks just like his dad. And they rejected him. And he went on the cross. And though he was thrust outside the city, rejected by the builders, thrown into the ground, spat on, and bloodied until he was unrecognizable, Isaiah 53 says. And nailed to a cross, he took all of his father's wrath toward our sins, and they weighed on him so heavily that the only word that Isaiah could come up with is crushed. He was crushed under that. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The the love of God in Christ Jesus is really astonishing. It is astonishing. The one for whom all things exist would go through that for me? I don't deserve that. And he went through for you. If your faith is in him, he went through the cross for you. It is staggering. So my plea today with this text and really with understanding the centrality of of Christ Jesus for our church 
is that you don't ever reject the cornerstone. Don't reject him. Embrace the cornerstone. He loves you. And he has gone to extraordinary lengths to show his love. Let go of everything else. Everything else. There's nothing more significant than him. And take refuge in him alone. There is no other name under heaven by which man will be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's the roots of what it means when we say at Risen Hope that we cherish the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's important to us. It is the most important. There's nothing more important than that. Let's pray. Father God, it is, it is physically impossible for me to do any justice to what we've been looking at today. And so I'm pleading with you. And I'm asking for you to do the impossible. Take our, our hearts, which some of which are cold and empty and devoid of delight in God, the source of all joy, and I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we sing, as we participate in communion, that you would come and that you would make yourself very, very present in our awareness and in the faculties of our hearts, Father. That you would press into the deepest parts of our soul and commend to us a kind of knowledge of the centrality of Christ, the supremacy of Jesus over all things that would never go away that would anchor us to you forever. That we would see the cornerstone, that we wouldn't reject the cornerstone, but that he would become to us the greatest treasure in the universe. Worth, like the other parable says, finding a treasure in the field, and because of the joy that it brings us, we will sell everything. doesn't matter. Everything. Because we love you. Father, I pray that you would ignite that fire and passion in our hearts and that it would feed into every lane in our lives, whether it's work, whether it's play, whether it's family, whether it's recreation, Father, that every aspect of our hearts would be guided by the centrality of Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.